Our sermon today is taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. This is the word of God. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Lauren. Friends, let's pray one more time before we enter into our sermon. Father, your word often gives us tasks and uh, duties and um, responsibilities that are far uh, unreachable for us to actually do consistently week in and week out. And Father, I pray that as we hear just that today uh, from your word, that is the call to minister the gospel to each other, that is the call to love and be united with each other under Christ. These things are are things that we in our own human power have no ability to do. And we beg you that your spirit would move and that it make this text clear. But not only that, it'll convict our hearts and it'll empower and excite our hearts that we may be faithful in doing this um, as your saints here on earth, washed by the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, we're going to be continuing in our series today called uh, The Priesthood of All Believers. Just to clarify again what that is, the priesthood of all believers is a biblical understanding that all Christians, all Christians, not just pastors, not just full-time ministers, have equal standing before God because of what Christ has done for them and are called by God to contribute to the work of ministering his gospel to each other and to the world. If you think of the role of priests in the Old Testament, priests are people God has called to be mediators between God and man. Now, as people in the New Testament, you and I, the church, as we've seen in the various passages in the past two weeks, we're called what? A holy priesthood. We're not the ultimate priest. We're not the ultimate mediator between God and man. That person would be Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and what he's done on the cross for us as he paid for our sins. We are priests and mediators in the sense that we are called to point others to Christ. Now this doctrine is largely missing in our culture and we hope that through this series we can encourage everyday Christians who are not in full-time ministry to be convinced through scripture that this is in fact God's will, that you too take up the responsibility of participating in his work of ministering the gospel of Christ to others and not to fall into the temptation to treat tithes as if it's a collective wage to hire full-time Christian professionals to do your part of kingdom work for you. We hope you'll be absolutely convinced of this so that Gray and I can take more holidays. (laughs) Just kidding, but seriously, but just kidding. But, okay, so you may be here today and you're not a Christian, and you're still exploring Christianity. And this topic and passage we're studying today would still be very relevant to you, as I hope that by the end of it, you get a clear picture of what Christianity is and what the gospel is all about. But for some of us here, we might have been Christians for a long time, maybe our whole lives, and we've never viewed ourselves as a part of this priesthood of all believers that the Bible talks about. What does that mean? 
What am I supposed to do to be priests and ministering the gospel to others? Am I supposed to quit my day job and be a pastor full time? Where do I start? What do I do? Well, let's jump in. There's three things of how you can grow and persevere in your identity as priests that partake in the work of ministry and point others to Christ. One, be involved in a local church. Two, rally and unite around Christ. Three, hold fast to the cross. Be involved in a local church, rally and unite around Christ, hold fast the cross. Point one, be involved in the local church. Verse 11 starts, if you look at our text, with the phrase, he gave. He referring to Jesus Christ here. Now, now think, when you think of Christ giving his people gifts, he, he gave, right? What usually immediately comes to mind is the gifts of the Spirit, which would be correct. That's what Paul talks about before our verse today. Before this, if you read a few verses before, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And we think about the gifts of the Spirit that Christ gives to his people. Usually what comes to mind is the extraordinary and eccentric kind of gifts, like healing and prophesying in tongues. I don't want to get into that right now. You can hear my thoughts about it later if you want. But what I do want to point out here right now um, is a gift of the Spirit that is being highlighted in verse 11, and that is the church. That's what verse 11 is all about. Jesus' Jesus's gift to his people is the church. Where do we see that? Look at the first two gifts on the list in verse 11. He gave what? Apostles and prophets. First, apostles. Apostles, they are, the, they are the people that Jesus has appointed, Matthew, Mark, John, Peter, and then later in the book of Acts, Paul, to do what? When you hear those names, what comes to mind? There are authors whose records and letters are found where? In the New Testament. Okay? Apostles. Then second on the list, prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, all those guys. When you hear their names, what comes to mind? They're all authors of, of, of books found where? In the Old Testament. So first, here's God's gift to you, Christian. The recording of the Old and New Testament, in other words, the Bible, which God did through his apostles, New Testament, and his prophets, Old Testament. He gave you that. One more supporting verse here, I think it's up here, is Ephesians 2, uh, 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 verses, chapter 2, verse 20. It, might, it may not be. But it says this, We are called the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We, the church, are built upon the foundation of the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, okay? And friends, if you're building a house, how many times do you lay down a foundation? Once. That's it. The Bible, the Old and the New Testament, the foundation of the church has been laid down by God through his apostles and prophets, and we now, his household, the church, are to be built up upon that one foundation. That's God's spiritual gift to you, the Bible. Now let's move on to the rest of the gifts here in verse 11. After the apostles and prophets, he gave evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Due to time constraint, a quick way to explain it is probably perhaps through my own story. When I was sent by the denomination that ordained me, I was not initially ordained and sent as a pastor. I was first ordained as an evangelist because I was planning a new church plant. I wasn't joining an already established church. So as an evangelist, I was ordained to do all the things that pastors can do, preach, teach, do communion, baptism, without yet having a local church to do them in. 
That's what someone who is ordained as an evangelist does. Biblically speaking, as we see Timothy, amongst other in the New Testament, who are called evangelists, that's the big role. That's what they did. They planted churches, and they acted like pastors in one way or another before a local church was officially there. But then, a year after I landed in Indonesia, CCC started, the first worship service started, and then we began to actually have official members. And eventually, we ordained a second elder, Gray, when he came in. And right after CCC officially had members and have more than one elder, because that's biblically in the Bible, it's always plural when you hear about elders in a church. Right after CCC officially have members and ordain more than one elder, CCC at that point, according to biblical standards, officially became a local church. And when CCC became a local church, I was no longer an evangelist. I was someone who shepherds and teaches the Bible. See the last two gifts there in verse 11? I was someone who shepherds and teaches the Bible in the context of a local church. In other words, a pastor. So here's the point, okay? Here's what Jesus gave you, Christian. His gift to you are the pastors in your local church who shepherd and teach you according to the foundation that God has laid down through his apostles and his prophets, which is the Old and New Testament. Let's summarize it more succinctly. Verse 11 is saying that God's gift to you are the pastors in your local church that shepherd you according to and teach you the Bible week in and week out. That's it. See, I've said this before. We live in a culture of awesome. Everything has to be awesome. Everything has to be glamorous and shiny and big and loud. So when we read the Bible, we're often drawn to the spiritual gifts that are glamorous, shiny, big and loud. And you know the precious spiritual gift that often gets shrugged under all that noise? The church, the local church. That's a spiritual gift to you from Christ. So the next time someone who's hung up on the eccentric, extraordinary gifts of the Spirit says to you, ordinary Christians, that you don't have the gifts of the Spirit just because you can't speak in tongues or whatever, tell them, yes, I do have the gift of the Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit within me, I have the Bible before me, and I have my church around me. God's given you that. Embrace it. Okay, so let's continue the verse 12. This is how this connects with the theme of priesthood of all believers. Look at verse 12. What are the shepherds and the teachers at your local church called to do? Look at verse 12. To do ministry, yes, but we're also called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see? Who are the saints? You are. Every Christian that's been washed by the blood of Christ is a saint. So who's supposed to be participating in the work of ministry? Who's supposed to point others to Jesus Christ? Not just the pastors in your local church. You are. We're meant to equip you to do that. That's a part of our job description. So that you can play a role as priests that also point others to Christ. The privilege of ministering the gospel to each other and presenting Christ to the world is not just your pastor's job, it's yours too. Church members do not tithe and support their pastors so that their pastors can read and study and do ministry for them. Church members tithe and support their pastors so that they can be fed in the word of God, grow up in their faith, so that they can be more equipped to partake in the work of ministry in one way or another. Friends, Gray and I can't do it on our own. We need our members to help out and take ownership. Here's what happens when the pastors are expected to do everything, okay? You'll either break them or you'll cause them to, you'll cause them to be the ultimate narcissist. Let me explain. 
A seminary professor in frustration once wrote an article that says, that asked, asked the readers, have you ever read recently the qualifications and demands found in pastoral search documents? It goes something like this. He must be friendly, outgoing, brimming with people skills, motivational, a manager, a visionary, a program creator, a movement director, a financial director, a counselor, an academic, and has a wife who can fill the role of first lady. <laughs> Better yet, if she can play the organ. Tati's really good at the organ, by the way. <laughs> the expectations that the church has these days on their pastors is to be Superman and do it all. I promise you, it'll break them. It'll break them. Or the other option, which is usually the one that actually happens, is this. The congregation will actually fool the pastor and fool themselves into thinking that that person is actually all those things. Creating a narcissist because no one is all of those things. And trust me, church, it's not very hard to make a narcissist out of your pastor. Friends, don't do either of those things to them. <laughs> what we need to do is share the load. Be equipped to, the, to do the work of ministry, no matter how small it may be. What will happen if you don't partake in the work of ministry and think all you're called to do is just to pay tithes? The ones being disadvantaged is not just your pastors, it's you as well. Okay? You won't grow and mature in your faith. You won't be further equipped and grow in the knowledge of Christ, as verse 13 says. You won't feel ownership for God's work in your city. And often what will happen is slowly you'll develop a consumer mentality toward your church. As if the church is in the service industry and you are a customer. Or perhaps even worse, you'll condition yourself to think that the church is in the entertainment industry and you are an audience to be entertained. No. You are not customers. You're not an audience. You are priests who are called to take up the work of ministry and be equipped in doing so. Resist. Resist creating a culture where your role is just to pay tithes so that your pastors, through his persona, can gather large numbers of people on Sunday mornings, turning the church into an industry where customers are satisfied and audiences are entertained where we may look big and glamorous, but yet the equipping of the saints, faithful exegetical preaching and teaching of the Old and New Testament, proper shepherding and church discipline, proper administration of the sacraments, and the intentional care to grow a priesthood of all believers are all sacrificed, sacrificed upon the altar of movement and the idolatry of becoming big. Resist it. That's not what the church is here for. In the midst of this culture that's recently permeated the church, one of my seminary professors, I remember, told a story of a pastor of a small-town church, small 50-member church or so in the rural area somewhere. And I remember that the simple story of this faithful pastor just captivated me. It's a true story, and it begins uh, with a young family in that church that had a baby. The pastor baptized that baby. It's a Presbyterian church. Calm down. The pastor baptized that baby, watched him grow, taught him the Bible through Sunday school, and once 
the child got a bit older, he moved from Sunday school and started joining the Sunday service where the pastor continued to preach the word of God faithfully to that child alongside the other members. And then that child eventually received Christ as Lord and Savior. So what did the pastor do? He went through the catechism classes with him, taught the child what it means to be a member of a local church, explained the vows, and then eventually installed him as a member of that church. For years and years and years, continued to preach the word to him, shepherded him, counseled him through tough life decisions. And, and he grew up under his shepherding, went through leadership classes and deeper Bible study classes, became a more involved member. Eventually, he was further equipped to do ministry. He became a Bible study leader. He led community groups and different things like that. And then, this child, who is now a grown man, fell in love. So the pastor married him to his beloved wife, did premarital counseling, walked them through marital conflict, and guided them to continue to do ministry as a married couple in the church. But then, that child, who the pastor has shepherded and loved and equipped and cared for and guided in the gospel his whole life, got sick. And he died in a relatively young age. And that pastor buried him. He organized the funeral. He did the funeral sermon. And tears flowed down, soaking his pastor's robe, much in the same way that the water of baptism did when he first baptized him as a baby. Tears of sorrow, tears of joy, of having loved, cared for, shepherded, preached, taught, and equipped a saint who in turn participated in the work of ministry alongside him as a fellow priest till he was sent back home to face his Lord and Savior. And then he continued to faithfully do the same to the, his other members. No glitz, no glam, just robust faithfulness for the household of God. Now, I'm not saying I want to bear anyone. <laughs> but there's a faithful simplicity about that small town pastor, isn't there? It caught my heart in the midst of all the angst I find in the church today. And that's what you should want from your pastor. It's fine and good if they're naturally good at leading movements or they have a shiny persona that can attract people. That, that's fine. But what I find is that often we prioritize those things in a shepherd rather than his heart to actually shepherd, to simply just faithfully love and care and equip you to partake in the work of ministry until you proceed to glory. Why? Don't break your pastor. Don't create a narcissist out of him. Come, be equipped, and join in the work of ministry as fellow priests. Be involved in your local church. Sit under a pastor's preaching uh, in the word uh, week in and week out in the church that you're a member in. Uh, uh, that's God's gift for you. Grow up in your faith. Ask the leaders and elders in your church how to further be equipped. Ask about our leaders and training program. Join mercy ministry. Join community group and Bible studies. Be equipped. Then alongside your pastor, build up God's church for God's glory until your time on earth is done. Now, how can you know whether or not you're on the right track or you're, if your church is in the right track? How can you know whether or not you and your church uh, are, uh, or your church is faithfully preaching the Bible to you and maturing you and equipping you for the work of ministry? Well, one way you can tell is if a church is moving toward maturity, uh, if it's also moving towards unity. Second point, rally and unite around Christ. So verse 11, let me just recap. 
In verse 11, as the pastors and, and, and shepherds faithfully and preaches the Bible uh, to, to, to his church, in verse 12, which then will equip their members to minister the gospel to each other and to the world, what will happen? Look at verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Meaning the members of this kind of church will increasingly find themselves living in deep gospel fellowship with one another. Now, the point here is twofold. One, yes, the unity and the oneness and the fellowship, that, that's, that's one of the main points. But here is, I think, what could even be more important than that. See, it's not just about the unity. It's what you're united around. A sign of a maturing church that is equipping saints for the work of ministry is that they'll be united, specifically verse 13 says, in the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, a maturing church filled with members who have been fed by robust theological meat, not just milk, who's been shepherded and equipped to minister to one another, will be united with each other, specifically in their knowledge of Christ, and not ultimately, I want to emphasize, not ultimately because of other similarities that they might have. See, if the primary basis of our fellowship with each other in our churches is anything other than Jesus Christ, it will leave room for division and pride. What do I mean? For example, say, that CCC is united, not primarily under the banner of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel, but instead by our age group. Okay, people join CCC primarily because it just, it just kind of fits them with, with the stage of life that they're in. That's fine if that's one of the minor reasons, but if that's your main, 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 main reason of joining, what will happen is that we'll fall into what's called generational pride. Imagine if every Christian chose churches based primarily on the similarity of age group. Can you imagine the landscape of the church today? Every church will be divided by age group. And you know what will happen? The world will look at that and say this. Oh, I guess the blood of Christ isn't greater than generational gaps. Because that's clearly what draws them to each other over and above the gospel. Generational pride. Or, let's talk about the elephant in the room shall we? Let's say you join CCC because people here are in the same financial strata as you are. If that's the case, this church will quickly fall into economic pride. Can you imagine the landscape of the church in Indonesia if that's the uniting factor for local churches instead of Christ? Every church will be divided by economic standing. The rich church, the poor church, the middle class church, the world will look at Christianity and say, oh, I guess the blood of Christ isn't greater than their financial gaps. Because that's clearly what's uniting them and drawing them to each other. Fill in the blank with anything, right? If the primary uniting factor for a church is your hobbies or your interests or your ethnicities, it will devalue the gospel and leave room for pride and division. Now I get why it's difficult to join a church that is filled with people who are different than you. Whether in age or ethnicity or financial standing, it's hard. It's hard because you feel the anxiety of loneliness. You fear the possibility of never connecting. And this anxiety is especially intensified for people who are of age to get married. Not that that's our demographic or anything. For you to prioritize choosing a church based on their faithful preaching and shepherding you in the Bible towards Christ 
and that equips you to do ministry, instead of prioritizing all the other more natural connection points mentioned earlier, the anxiety feels a little, more, a little bit more weighty, doesn't it? What if I'm alone forever? What if I never find a spouse here? There are many reasons why being united around Jesus Christ instead of the more natural uniting factors may produce anxiety. But what if God is telling you here to trust him? To make decisions based on what his word says and not based on your own game plan. What if that's what he's saying here? Be involved, be an involved member of a church where, where you will grow in your knowledge of Christ that prioritizes biblical teaching and shepherding, where you'll get equipped to partake in the work of ministry. What if he's saying, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, even when it's costly? You know, if that's what you prioritize, not only will you grow into maturity and join Christ and be further equipped to glorify God through ministry, but can you imagine the landscape of the church in Indonesia? You know what the world will see? As John Calvin said, kings and peasants, young and old, worshiping with each other, united under the glory of the cross. You know what the world will say then? Man, this Jesus must mean so much to them. It unites misfits like this with each other. I know the kind of insecurities that this man or woman must feel going to this church. I know how uncomfortable this man or woman must feel going to that church. But my goodness, they're willing to persevere through all that and risk in that way just so they can get more of Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And why is he so meaningful to these people? And lo and behold, just by that alone, you'll already be playing a priestly role in pointing the world to Jesus. By the way, you love one another. Is not, not what he said in John 13? They will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Now, I realize what is asked of us in the short three verses is a lot. You're asked to risk to be involved in a church that faithfully preaches and teaches the Bible even though you're not immediately 100% comfortable with them from the get-go. You're asked to grow in your knowledge of Christ so that you can be more equipped to help uh, other members of this church and the world out there uh, and do the work of ministry and uh, ministering the gospel to them. And then you're asked to grow in unity and remain faithful uh, to that church in order to show the world just how powerful the blood of Christ is. Those are all easy things to nod and say amen to on a Sunday morning sermon, but they're really, really, really hard things to actually do throughout the week, aren't they? Why is that? Here's why. Because if you haven't noticed, your church, our church, is filled with a bunch of immature sinners. That's why applying these three verses into real life is excruciatingly hard. So what do we have to do to persevere through that last point? Hold fast to the cross. Look again at verse 13. It says, Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ until we attain maturity, until we attain fullness in Christ. What does that mean? That means at the moment, none of us have yet attained it. We're all still on a journey toward maturity. We're all still on a journey toward fullness of Christ. In other words, we all still have immaturities and deep root sins within us. 
The reason why it's hard to persevere in our priestly duties, united under the gospel, and minister the gospel to one another here in the church, the reason why it's, it's hard to do that is because your local churches are filled with imperfect Christians who are still in the process of growing up in the faith. And none of you have, re have reached maturity. Neither your pastors. So how do you deal with that? Okay, first, I think by remembering the amazing lesson that the people who are described as still in the process of growing up, the people who are still on a journey toward maturity mentioned in verse 13 includes you too. It includes me too. So it's funny how we think about living in community and, and we hear sermons like this and we're called to be patient to each other. And, and, and the first thing we think about is, yeah, I gotta be patient with others. <laughs> and we often forget the amount of patience it takes for other people to be in a relationship with us. Do you realize how, how many annoying idiosyncrasies you have? You have tons. I do too. Chances are you're learning to, uh, you're, you're listening to a sermon like this and you're thinking about somebody in specific, yeah. You're saying, that's, that's right. I've got to be patient with that one person. He or she is still growing up and maturing their relationship with Christ. I've got to remember they're not there yet. Chances are they're throwing those thoughts right back at you. Because if they're rubbing you the wrong way, rejoice. More often than not, the feeling's mutual. And our offenses to each other, to be honest, they go way beyond just annoying idiosyncrasies. They're often downright awful and sinful, aren't they? Now, I think the reason why we're, we aren't aware of how much patience it takes for other people to live in community with us is because this. Because I think we believe we're under the delusion that they can't see through us. They can. The thoughts and judgments that we have in our heads about other people that we try to hide, at first people might not see it, but live in community long enough, they'll start to sense it. The standards we have and how we choose who's good enough to fellowship with and who's not, we think we hide it well, but people can tell. The way we tend to take everything so personally, no matter how hard we try not to. <laughs> we think other people don't see that and aren't affected by it. They do, and they are. The way we care so much about appearances, even though we try to hide it, trust me, people can see that a mile away. The unquenchable need we have to impress others all the time with our accomplishments. Although we try to be not so obvious about it, I promise you, live in community long enough, people see right through that too. Because you smell it from a mile away, don't you? The longer we stick around in a community, the more and more transparent we become. The more people see right through us and the less we're able to hide behind our masks. That's why committing to a church is hard. It's much easier to just jump around from one church to another, stay under the radar, stay invisible, because deep inside we know and we're scared. If we spend enough time here, eventually people will see through us. And I know that honestly, oftentimes, it takes a lot of patience to live with me and my imperfections. We're still on a journey. They are, you are, I am. But here's what's even more bizarre. Although we're all described in verse 13 as still being on the way and we're still filled with immaturities, we have annoying idiosyncrasies, we have deep sins that can hurt others and offend God, prideful tendencies, divisive inclinations, lack of patience, despite of all that, 
Paul, the author of this book, in the very same sentence in verse 12, right before verse 13, called us what? Look at verse 12. Saints. You know what a saint is? A saint is somebody who's flawless. A saint is somebody who's completely righteous before God, living in communion and fellowship with God. Now that's confusing, isn't it? How can Paul call us both immature and imperfect sinners, but yet saints in the same sentence? <laughs> because friends, there was someone who extended the ultimate patience toward us. Because there was someone who counted us precious enough to endure with us despite all of our sins. And not only endure it, but to pay for it, even when it led him to the cross. The reason why Paul can confidently call immature sinners like us saints is because our sainthood isn't based upon our own righteousness. Our fellowship with God isn't based upon our own accomplishments, but because God himself persevered in having a relationship with us despite of the cost and died on a cross so that our sins may be forgiven, making us saints. Jesus extended the ultimate patience toward us and paid the highest price so that he can have eternal fellowship with us. You know what that gospel does? You know what it should do? Knowing uh, the reason that we have fellowship with God, knowing the reason why our sins are no longer counted to us is because Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice, that should humble you in such a way to where you're willing to persevere through other people's sins and immaturities and have fellowship with them despite the cost because that's what God did for you in Christ. If you want to point the world to a God and Savior who is out of this world, you've got to show them a love and affection for each other that is also out of this world. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you first realize He came to you from out of this world and died on a cross, driven by His longing to have union with you. Until you accept that gospel truth, that your relationship with God only exists because He paid the conditions that you could not live up to you. Unless you receive that, you're never going to be able to love and minister the gospel to others unconditionally. So, how can the reality of the cross of Christ grow deeper in our lives? Join as a member in a local church where the shepherds and teachers there are faithfully preaching to you the Old and New Testament, in other words, the Bible, and, and doing so in such a way where they're growing in your knowledge of Christ. If you place yourself under that accountability week in and week out, under his word, week by week, God's word that is, you will grow and be equipped in your knowledge of Christ and you'll find yourself being able to minister and being willing to minister that same gospel to others, all the while extending grace to those in your community. And as a household of God, the church built up a, a messy household it may be, with a lot of immature members and family conflicts, but yet perseveres and ministers to each other in the midst of everyone's messiness. We will, through that perseverance, not only become priests to each other and point others to Christ, but also be a priesthood that points the world to Christ, who sees through our relationship with one another and love with one another the gospel of mercy and grace. A new commandment I give you, love each other the same way which I have loved you, by this the world will know that you are my disciples. Make it real, church. 
Let the knowledge of Christ grow deeply in your heart. Prioritize that. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, no matter the cost. Let's pray. Father, forgive our hearts for desiring and longing more the glitz and the glam that this world has to offer and wanting to make the church to be all about that and sacrificing faithful preaching of the word week in and week out, the ordinary means of grace, of sacraments, uh, uh, the discipleship in the church, church discipline, um, uh, shepherding and caring for each other and ministering the gospel to each other in a way that simply grows saints towards maturity and equipping them so they can love one another, be united and minister the gospel to each other and to the world. The church isn't in the industry of entertainment. It's not in the service industry. It's in the industry of worship. Let us come to you with that heart, with that desire to grow as mature Christians, fed the word of God, equipped to love one another for your glory until the day we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.